Some of this stuff, this Bible stuff, it just seems too far out there to mean anything. Which part are you thinking of? Well, let's go with the four horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. Mm. It's just like these four freaky dudes that come in and they like destroy the world or something. How am I supposed to read that? Well, in a way, there's actually four ways you can read that. Which are? You can read it in a white horse state of mind, a red horse state of mind, a black horse state of mind, or a pale horse state of mind. Yeah, although I wouldn't recommend that one. So these aren't supernatural destroyers that are going to warp in and eliminate us. They're us? Well, I guess that's good, but a little anticlimactic. Well, I'd hold off on saying that exactly. Once you really understand what the horse riders represent, you'll see that those mindsets have absolutely wreaked havoc on this world, from corruption to apathy to massive wars. Wow. It sounds like, you know, apocalyptic. Mm, Good word. How can a few colorful horses, riders, and accessories tell us fundamental truths about how humanity interfaces with belief systems and the consequences that can result? Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborg in Life. Today we're going to be looking at the meaning of the four horsemen in the book of Revelation. My name is Curtis Childs and I'll be your host. And I have with me as always Swedenborg scholar Dr. Jonathan Rose. Hey, Thanks Curtis. so much for coming. And today in looking at this story of the horsemen in the book of Revelation, we're going to be focusing through that on the necessity of transparency so that things can mm. be clearly seen and sorted out when the time is right for a judgment. Yes, as viewers may know, if you've been watching other episodes, Swedenborg often defines a judgment as a sorting out, which brings a change and reestablishes the order, sort of a reset. That's right. And we're going to explain everything about what that means, but we should really put this show in its context, Mm. because this is part of a larger narrative that's been going on in the book of Revelation. If you've been watching our other shows in this series, you see we go back to our Revelation game board. We've been moving through the initial chapters of the book. At first, we looked at this, uh, what we call the vision of a God-centered life. The God appears in the middle of these lampstands. It was really the inner meaning, a call to have the divine at the center Mm. of what you're doing. Then we moved on from there to the meaning of the seven churches. There's these letters sent out to these seven churches, and that was a call to become aware of our strengths and also the things we need to work mm, on. That's good. Yeah. From there, we moved on to the... There's this scene in the throne room, and this is in the internal sense, describing how before big change happens, God is carefully getting things ready behind the scenes. Cool. So sort of the providence before. And now... In this week's, we'll be talking about the time for transparency. The true state and quality of things have to be revealed so that all can be sorted out. And we'll be taking place in this throne room, but it's the action that happens next. Mm. So we're talking about right, this, right, right. this transparency, but like what, so the other stuff in those other uh, episodes was pretty important sounding stuff. So how, how would transparency really be a relevant thing? How would that really help in our lives? You know? right. Right. I mean, it's making me think of that kitchen, uh, that office kitchen incident that we oh. went through a little while ago. Yeah, you really want to, you know, air that out. I mean, on it's air. a painful memory, but all right, let's get into it. Yeah. So, everyone who's watching. We have a typical office kitchen with people going in and out, and one day we began to notice that something wasn't quite right in the kitchen. Yeah, we gradually realized that actually it was a smell. It didn't smell so good anymore in the kitchen. But, you know, we're all busy, so we just kept going about our business. Plus, we didn't really want to think about where that smell might be coming from. Yeah, and the thing is, as the days went by, 
it got worse. Man, did it ever. Life in the kitchen got more and more unpleasant. It got harder to be in there. It got particularly harder to eat in there. And finally, it was so bad that we realized we had to do something. We had to investigate what is causing this smell. So we bravely followed it, tried to track it down, and it led us to the fridge, which we opened. Yeah, we didn't see anything at first, but there was this drawer in there that no one had opened for a long time. And so we gingerly opened it. That was an unpleasant moment. I really don't like to think about it. But it was good to go through that. I mean, we found the rotting food that was the source of the smell, and then we could proceed to clean it up, and we washed out that drawer. You know, and then... And then life in the kitchen was good again. Uh, and that was all because we were finally able to see what was really going on. That's the... It shows the beauty of transparency. So transparency can really change the way we approach problems and, and mm-hmm. our willingness to engage in them in effective ways. So we want to bring that same kind of awesome transparency into our own day-to-day lives. We're going to do that by looking at the meaning of these first four seals mm. in Revelation, beginning in part one. So we begin our story, let's remind us ourselves of the literal setting of the story. Now, this, this literal setting occurs in the spiritual world, but these are the objects described when the story is going on. We're in this throne room, which we described in a previous show, and there's all kinds of adornments and objects and characters in their places. And in the inner meaning, this is that there had been chaos in the world of spirits. There were false teachers and doctrines, and that God had prepared the whole spiritual world for this coming judgment to set things right. So it's this organization and divine care before something big happens. Then if we get on to the the movement in the literal sense of the story, you have God holding this book, which is sealed with seven seals on it. It has a lot of seals, so that book is really stuck shut, and there must be something worthwhile in there if God is holding it out. So here's where the story continues on from there. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look in it. So I wept much that no one was found worthy to open and read the book or to look in it. So there's a lot of emphasis on this opening of the book. And I get that opening a book is relatively important if you're going to read the book, but still, it's such a focal point that it seems like there's got to be something more to it. Why does it matter so much who's going to open the book, how it's going to be done? Well, Swedenborg says this is actually a very crucial correspondence. He talks about it in Apocalypse Revealed 262. He says, since to open the book means symbolically to know the states of life of all, to look in it means symbolically to see the character of this or that person's state of life. So the book is, is us. Consequently, that no one could open the book or look in it means symbolically that they had not the least power to do so. For the Lord alone sees the state of each person's life, from its inmost qualities to its outmost ones, including what the person was like from infancy to old age, and what he or she will be like to eternity as well as to what place the person will be assigned in heaven or in hell. Moreover, the Lord sees this instantaneously and does so of himself because he is divine truth itself, 
or the Word. And just remember, whenever Swedenborg talks about the Word, he means something more than just the literal Bible. You can see there, divine truth itself is this Word. Somehow God is it. Angels and other people, on the other hand, cannot do this in the least, look into themselves, understand their own state or the states of others, because they are finite. And finite people see only a few outward qualities, and even these they do not see of themselves, but from the Lord. So this opening of the book, I love this correspondence, is an opening of, of us to, to really understand and see what we're really like. And I, I read this in two ways. First of all, you don't know what somebody else is really like. It's easy to write people off, to judge them, to categorize them. And we have to make some prudent decisions about how we interact with people. But to say, oh, I know who or what you are. No, you don't. Only God gets that. And it's even so dramatic that it's true for our own selves. You may think you have a pretty good line on who or, or what you are. But really, the full picture, this is only divine love and wisdom, can know something like that. So the book couldn't be opened because only God has the power to really look inside, understand us through and through. And you notice that this really got to John. Uh, he was he was weeping, it says in there. And this is, it's not just the detail, like, oh, should we really get John to do this? He's pretty sensitive, you know, he's going to cry when we can't open it. No, John's grief has meaning as well. This is Apocalypse Revealed 263. The reason John grieved at heart was because all would otherwise perish. Indeed, if everything in heaven and on earth had not been put back into order by the last judgment, the case could not not have been otherwise. So the, the activity that was taking place here was not just extracurricular or this is a fun kind of project we could try. This was necessary for the survival of everything. So it not going on shows, and, and John's grief at it, show the potential of that shows the severity, uh, the stakes that we're dealing with here. So you've got this task that's so important to look into the heart and the mind to really know what we're like and nobody seems to be able to do it. Is it all going to go downhill? Well, what we really need in order to accomplish this is, is a hero. And the hero emerges in the next couple of verses. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose its seven seals. And I looked. And behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders, a lamb standing as though slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It's a little confusing. Is it a lion or is it a lamb? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah is prevailing. Okay, let's see this lion. No, you look in there and it's a lamb. It's, okay, which which of these two is God? It's got to be God that's that's the hero here that's showing up to do it, but isn't God already sitting in the throne room? So remember, correspondentially, the Bible is speaking in terms of aspects of divinity. Like Swedenborg asserts with the Trinity, that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are not three different persons in God, but they are different aspects of God. Similarly, God on the throne, the Lion, and the Lamb are all descriptors of the parts of of how the divine operates. And there's specific meanings and why they take these forms as well. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is the Lord, who by his own power conquered the hells and put everything into order when he was in the world, through the divine goodness united to the divine truth in his humanity. And you think about a conqueror, what, what is a more a symbol of power in the natural world than a lion? But then, not only that, you have a, a lamb, which is the opposite, but this lamb is as though slain. So like a, a, a dead lamb. Like what's, what's less imposing 
than that. But Swedenborg says that this is the Lord in respect to his humanity, not acknowledged in the church as divine. So this there was this human loving, tender side of God, which was not being given its due in the, the institutions of Swedenborg's day. Not pictured here, just because it gets weird when you try to draw it, seven horns, which were the omnipotence of this lamb, and seven eyes, which were the omniscience and the divine wisdom. So what does it mean to be spiritually slain? Again, every detail can be unpacked, and Swedenborg does so in Apocalypse Revealed 3.15. He says, The Lord is said spiritually to be slain when the truth is denied and the good is rejected, these being from him. Among these people also he is not acknowledged, for a person who denies and rejects those things that are from him also denies and rejects him. For the Lord is with people in his own truths and goods. It's not like God as this, the the life force itself, the infinite and uncreated, is about to be killed, but it's God killed inside of us, our receptivity to God. If we're not allowing truth and goodness in, it's like we're killing the lamb, because the lamb is a picture of God trying to come through us into love and, and into loving, caring actions. And when we just kill the lamb, that doesn't occur, right? So there is a picture there, not just of the the potential for how we interact with God, but the potential for how it goes wrong. But even so, even with this lamb that had been slain, you'll see there's still power there. But did you miss it? There was these spirits as well in that verse that that go out. And what is that? Is that just why you already got all these other characters? Why well, are you going to introduce these new ones? But these have a very particular meaning, and it's a crucial meaning that these spirits are about Jesus actually not being exclusive in salvation. These seven spirits are a picture of the universal outreach of God. And we'll have a reading from Swedenborg's Apocalypse Revealed 272, where he explains a little more. Which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth? The seven spirits of God are the divine truth emanating from the Lord. Their being sent out into all the earth clearly means throughout the world, wherever religion is found. For wherever religion is found, the people are taught that evil, being from the devil, must be shunned, and good, being from God, must be practiced. Such is the divine truth that exists throughout the whole world, wherever any religion is found. Therefore, one need know only what evil is. This, too, is something all who have any religion know. For the precepts of all religions are like those of the Ten Commandments, that one must not kill, behave licentiously, steal, or bear false witness. These are in general the divine truths sent out from the Lord into all the earth. Consequently, whoever lives according to these, on the ground that they are divine truths or the commandments of God and so of religion, is saved. So that's something. And you think about how much effort various religious institutions, including the Christian Church of Swedenborg's day, have put into saying, no, it's, it's only our way if you don't accept Jesus Christ in the way that we, that we consider accepting, acceptable, then you're, you're doomed and you're damned. But Swedenborg is saying that actually in that text there, the seven spirits going out, seven meaning all, is this picture of you know, God can work with whatever goodness you have based on the truth you live and believe. Any of that can be enough to get you on the path 
to heaven. And that's part of the celebration of the power of the Lamb there, is this ability to reach anyone, anywhere, through whatever tools are available to them. So we're on a roll. The Lamb has showed up, and the Lamb comes after this and takes the scroll and actually all of heaven bows down and sings praises and gratitude in the story. And we're just going to run you through a few of these praise phrases that come up in the text and what Swedenborg says they mean. This is in um, Revelation 5, 9, they give this, this speech, and they sang a new song, means an acknowledgement and glorification of the Lord as being the only judge, redeemer, and savior, thus God of heaven and earth. When they were saying, you are worthy to take the book and open its seals because you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood, signified deliverance from hell and salvation by conjunction with him. And out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation is that the Lord has redeemed those in the church or in any other religion who are impelled by truths in respect to their doctrine and by goods in respect to their life. So with all that going on, there is certainly cause for the kind of celebration that they were giving. And so this shows the power here of the transparency that we gain through the opening of the book, that the God looking in and really knowing what is actually true and good within people allows this outreach so that the whole swaths of the world can be connected with God and receive like all the, all the blessings in the heaven that comes with that. Yeah, you know, it's confusing in our lives when we don't know what's going on. We don't know exactly what we're thinking and feeling or which feelings, some things that are really good might be bad or the other way, or, you know, things that feel bad yeah. might actually be positive for you. We don't know what to trust and what to reject. Yeah, so this, this sort of having our lives looked into like, like is being described in there, that's something we could really actually use. And yeah. if we're willing, <clears throat> because the way that the, the divine does things is it's got to be permission, but we can, we can have this sort of divine investigation into us to open our own eyes to it, because obviously God already knows, but w- even while we're here on earth, we can have God showing us, okay, this is maybe what smells in your fridge. This yeah, is what's okay. Right. And it's, you know, through, through a lot of things, you know, people get just sort of inspiration through revelation or spiritual truths, but also self-examination and really looking, what's my impact on people? But through, if we're willing to take that look, God can, can lay out for us, hey, maybe this is you know, what you should be working on. Yeah, and it's so great that that information is somewhere, you know, because yeah. we have a our own sort of grid of reality, but our grid can get kind of distorted, you know, that's by right. where we are, so we're not really seeing things clearly anymore. It's probably it's usually so distorted. Yeah, right? that's yeah. right, exactly. You're sort of telling yourself lies about who you are and how you come <laughs> across to other people and stuff like that. Yeah. And so to have that, if you're open to the information, that's why I think it, you have to set the scene first kind of thing, but yeah. if you're open to that information, it can be revealed, and it's actually helpful, just like that kitchen incident that ultimately, oh no, this is going to, you know, maybe a difficult or uncomfortable process, but it's going in a good direction. It's something that we should actually welcome, because right. otherwise it just gets worse. This, this allows you to deal with the problems, and for what it's worth, if we deal with it according to Swedenborg, in this life, that's better because we're going to have to deal with it. In the spiritual world, That's right. everything is in the open. We'd rather yeah. get cleaned up now no, before no, the guests Everybody get that, That's yeah. right. You really have more of a, of a chance to deal with stuff. Not that you don't have a chance to deal with things there, uh, but it's kind of late stage to, to just wait for that one, right. you know, that will happen to everybody. You can get ahead of the game and start to look at these things now yeah. and, and really sort it out. And it's also powerful to think about the fact that uh, the qualities that the Lord 
brings to this meant by that lion and that mm-hmm. lamb yeah. you know the lion being that that strength and the and the courage and the ability to fight hell and so on but also the lamb to me means that there's something so gentle and merciful and comforting you know yeah. like like is actually trying to move in a positive direction yeah that these are two different ways we can we can feel god so so we have this the lamb showed up and the lamb's going to open these That's seals right. so i want to know like what does it do? What happens when those mm. are opened up? We're going to look at that in part two. So the image of the four horsemen, you see this quite a lot. People bring this up in late night TV, something, you know, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But the imagery that you see around it is often just of four equal looking horses and four sort of cloaked figures. And it represents a kind of doom, a harbinger of, you know, it's the end and catastrophe is about to strike. But actually, when you look at the text of the book of Revelation, it's not quite like that. There's a lot of emphasis on the horses. You know, there's more on the horses, it seems like, than the riders. And the horses are four different colors, which seems important. And I don't often see that depicted. And these colors, actually, the first horse is is good. It's not it's not bad. It's not a bad thing. I mean, it talks about conquering and so forth. But but let's have a look at what that means. Let's look specifically at this first horse. And what Swedenborg says is that what's going on in the big judgment, you, there's like the big judgment that, that happened in 1757 uh, that we've talked about in other episodes. Uh, what was going on in that was there were all these people in the world of spirits and some are hypocrites who are sort of playing a good game, but they're not really on the level in terms of what's in their hearts. And some are good, simple people, and some are sort of mixed up. And And so we need the Lord to sort all of that out. And these four horses are depictions of four different uh, ways of approaching, particularly religious teachings, you know, your your sacred text or something, whatever religion you're in, how are you taking that? Are you living by it? Uh, is the truth more important than how you live by it and so on? What are the different phases here? And they come in a logical order when you look at it that way. Actually, there's a reason the red one comes after the white one and so on. So let's have a look at this first one. Let's Let's just look at the text of what happens when this first seal is opened. Now I saw when the Lamb opened the first of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as though with a voice of thunder, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. You see what I mean there? That it's actually the first thing you hear about is the horse, and then you hear about the rider. The the horse is so important, and the color of it, and what the horses mean is our understanding of a sacred text, the word or whatever you know, whatever religion we're in, whatever that that uh, code is that you're supposed to be living by. If it's the idea of karma or whatever, uh, that's what uh, this is a judgment on. Are we deploying that in our lives or not? So in the case of the white horse, what it means is this. The rider on the white horse means people with a genuine understanding of truth and goodness from the word and who apply it to life. It's so crucial that that's the understanding is that, oh, this is something I'm supposed to live by. doesn't matter what the sacred text is. You have that understanding. Some people are in that white horse state that 
I've got to live by this. This is what this is about. This is not for intellectual stimulation or something. This is a code to live by. And so that's what it means about the goodness as well as the truth and applying it to life. Now, the bow means that their doctrine, those teachings, gives the ability to fight against falsity and evil rising up from hell. So this is a very positive image. People might think of those four horsemen as like, oh, no, it's doom. No, this is positive. This is the ability when you're in that mode of thinking, I've got to live by this. Then you realize, oh, you know, I need to do something about the things that are negative in my life. And so that teaching gives you the ability to fight against these falsities and evils that are rising up from hell and attacking our minds. And this crown, the interesting little detail it throws in there, is uh, what Swedenborg calls a badge of their combats, that you've actually gone to war, in a sense, against these negative things in yourself, and you've seen some success. You know, there's been some conquering going on there. And uh, the conquering and to conquer is a specific element that Swedenborg talks about. Here's Apocalypse Revealed 301. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Sort of a strange expression, isn't it? This symbolizes their victory over falsities and evils to eternity. He's conquering now and he's going to be conquering in the future. He is said to be conquering and to conquer because people who overcome in spiritual battles in the world, which are what temptations and trials are, overcome to eternity, for the hells cannot attack someone who has overcome. This is amazing. So it is actually possible. So many battles in this world, you just can't particularly win. But this is one that you can win. When that thing has been conquered, it's conquered forever, and it's never going to trouble you again. So that's what the rider on the white horse means. Quite different is the second one. And here's Revelation 6, verses 3 and 4, that talks about this red, fiery horse. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, so that people might kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. Hmm. Yeah, and so this red fiery horse and the idea of taking peace away from people, and he has a sword. Now, what do these different elements mean? Well, Swedenborg helpfully explains. The rider on the fiery red horse is an understanding of the word, or whatever your sacred text is, that is devoid of charity and not applied to life. Oh, so how you go from the white horse to the red horse is that the red horse is a focus on, when well, it's about the teachings and so on, but we're no longer actually thinking that this is something you have to live. You don't have to live it. And so it's devoid of caring for the, for the neighbor, you know, that kind of mutual love and kindness and compassion. It's just become a doctrinal system. And the great sword means these false ideas springing from hatred and evil that destroy the truth. You see, that second position is vulnerable to the attack of hell. The first one, the white horse, has an ability to keep hell in its place, to stop that influence from coming in. But the second one is vulnerable because it's made the teachings central, and it's not so much about how you live your life— 
and being compassionate, being a good person, then it's susceptible to this hell coming in. And that's why this position so interestingly creates a a lack of peace. And don't we see this as we look around ourselves in the world that different uh, theological perspective, different religions are fighting with one another, and even within one denomination, there are people fighting it. No, you're not doing it right. You're not. It takes peace away from the earth when it's not seen that it's primarily about love. And so, taking peace from that earth, what is that feast from the earth? Let's look at Apocalypse Revealed 306 that talks about this. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. This symbolizes the abolition of charity, of spiritual security, interesting, and of inner rest. Peace symbolizes everything whatever that comes from the Lord. And so everything pertaining to heaven and the church and the blessings of life in them. In the highest or inmost sense, these are blessings of peace. It follows from this that peace means charity, spiritual security, in other words, protection from hell, and inner rest. For when we abide in the Lord, we are at peace with our neighbor, which is a state of charity, and we have protection from hell, which is spiritual security. And when we are at peace with our neighbor and have protection from hell, we enjoy an inner rest from evils and falsities. Evils and falsities stir us up and make us unpeaceful. And so when we shifted from that white horse to the red horse, we lost that protection. We lost a little of that security. It's going downhill a little bit. So these come in a definite kind of order. And when we get down to that red fiery horse, whoops, peace has gone out the window. Yeah, it's powerful to think about the horses as, as states of mind. Mm-hmm. like that. And I'm wondering, how do I take that and, and look at myself through it? How do you apply this idea of the white horse, the red horse, to your own mind? Where would that show up for me day to day? Right. That's right. It, it's interesting to contemplate, are there parts of ourselves, you know, is there a white horse part? Is there yeah. a part that realizes, oh, this is about how I need to live my life? Mm. Uh, you know, like there's a lot of material in sacred texts. And so it may not, you may not be applying all of that, but you may be applying part of it, you know, so there may be a white horse part where you're putting that into your life and living by it. And it's actually helping you deal with, you know, hell for lack of a better word. In other words, negative, you know, negative thoughts, uh, uh, you know, false thoughts, uh, negative emotions, things like that. Yeah, so there's yeah. a there's some part of us that performs the function of the white horse that, that that is really looking for to live by what's good and true and to reject what's evil and false. And I guess if we're going for transparency, it doesn't all have to be like we're looking at ourselves to find out what's bad. That that's a good part. And if we can right. notice, differentiate. Well, that's the white horse in me, and to give that horse its food or whatever it needs to, to thrive. Yeah, that, that's right. Because um, you can't fix everything at once. Yeah. You know what I mean? You may be aware of 20 or 30 problems in yourself, but there's there's only one that you can really work on at a time, yeah. you know, kind of thing. Right. Uh, it's a gradual process. And so there's one area where that white horse is, is working. Yeah. It's over here. It's working. It's got the bow and everything. And, you know, it's yeah. working over in this part of your life. 
But then what do you think with the, you know, the red horse? Yeah, like, I was thinking, is that Wizard of Oz where they say that's a horse of a different color? Yes, so what right. do we do with this red horse? The red horse has a decidedly different tone to it. Yes, it also, does. Also, the, the white horse, much, uh, a lot more sort of violent, sinister. And, and this, this explanation that, that it's lacking love or that the primacy of love is gone. So, so right. what, where's the red horse uh, in us? Yeah, and it just seems like it's just a little tipping point where, you know, if... If love is just a little more important than truth, everything's fine. Reminds me of that show we did on Cain and Abel, you know, where if Abel's in charge, Cain is fine, still alive. But if Cain gets in charge, Abel's dead. Right. You just, is there a point, can we see in ourselves where, oh no, in this regard, I'm being more about, you know, I'm being more particular about, no, it's about this teaching. It's, and all of a sudden what comes in the door is this judgment yeah. So and so's not doing it right. right. Um, you know, or or only people who think this way, you know, I should only be you know dealing yeah. with or interacting with people who, who think this way and, and and all the fighting and all that that goes on between different perspectives comes in the door, taking all the peace away. I, I think you can feel the difference when you're using ideas as tools to help and, and uh-huh. to lead to love versus oh, like right. versus the ideas are the point. And you, and you still feel this enthusiasm for them, but you don't even realize that it's just the enthusiasm of being right. And yes, being, right. The, the, and it's left you emotionally vulnerable right. to the very thing that in the white horse perspective you're trying to get rid of. Yeah. You know, now, oh no, this is a different, this is a different color, yeah. as you say. You and know? it's a subtle line. You know, you, you get people who are very adamant about ideas for good reasons. Yeah. Um, and ideas, it's true that it's not just like, well, it doesn't matter what ideas we have. No, there's very, you know, if you, if you, uh, have a, an infectious disease and you don't abide by the idea of um, covering your mouth, it matters to other yeah. people. Yeah. But there's a line. So I think this again gets back to this the divine is the only one who can show each of us individually when you're red horse and yeah, when you're white horse. Right. So it's really up to each of us to look That's inside right. and try to see that. So you discern, yeah, oh, I've slipped in this regard. In this issue, yeah. I'm more on that other side of it. Yeah. So that we did it. That's all the, the four horses. And so what? No, no. I think there are two more, are there not? Right. When, when are we going to find out about those? Well, we're going to look at those right now in part three. So we've got our two horses, and we know that there's two more to go, and we kind of slid a little bit from horse number one to horse number two. We, we started on a high note, and, and things devolved from there, but maybe we're going to go back up here in horses three and four. Spoiler alert, it, it just gets worse and worse, and you'll see here as it begins. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse and he who sat on it had a scale in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So the horse has got this ar- ominous dark color to it, and so this, this is sounding scary already. And then if you look at the rider in his hand, he's got a, a scale. It just seems like a not quite as terrifying as a sword, but when you look at what the things mean, you start to see how we are uh, getting lower and lower in terms of human spiritual potential. So this rider on the black horse. What is it? What do all the aspects mean? First, the rider being on the black horse symbolizes an understanding of the word that does not have genuine truth or accurate doctrine. Lack of charity corrupts the understanding of truth. So there you have not just that you've got, you've missed 
out on what the ideas you're supposed to be living your life by are, it's because of a lack of love. So with, with no real desire or impetus to serve your fellow human beings or to make life better for them, the ideas suffer as well. Because truths, Swedenborg said, need to be grounded in love to actually be true. And then this scale, why, why carrying the scale? Their method of measuring the value of knowledge about goodness and truth. So it's about having your priorities off. This is a weighted scale where the things that should be the most weighty and meaningful in life, goodness and truth, the instructions on how to live well and the desire to live well to make life better for fellow human beings, that just doesn't matter to you anymore once you've got this black horse sort of mindset. And if you were paying attention to the verse, you might have noticed that, oh, this horse rides up, it's a big deal, it's scary, and then somebody starts yelling grocery prices out, right? Did you catch that part? Quart of wheat for a denarius. What, what's all that about, and why, why are we hearing it at this crucial point in the story? This is Apocalypse Revealed 3.14. A voice said, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil in the wine, which symbolically means that because the value these people placed on goodness and truth was so little as to be scarcely anything, provision had to be made to keep them from violating and profaning the sacred good goods and truths that lie hidden interiorly in the word. And the Lord provided this by there at last knowing not any good, and so not any truth, but only evil and falsity. For people who know goods and truths can violate them, indeed profane them, but not people who are ignorant of them. And Swedenborg talks about that in the spiritual state, when people are headlong diving into evil, that God takes away even the little good that they have. And you might think, well, that's not fair. So if you're already in a bad state, you, you get even what you have taken away. But it's actually for the person's own good, because if you are bent on destructive things, you will cause a lot more problems for yourself having this good in because the elements clash. Good and evil can't coexist, and you will start to misuse and abuse the good things, and just as much worse spiritually speaking. So that actually there's this this calling out of these prices. This is from what from what we gather. This is very cheap food, and that cheap food symbolizes that there was just no really caring in this mindset whether faith and charity were together, whether the the things we know about life served us to do better in life or, or was just a means to accomplish what we want. So you have these provisions that God is taking to make sure that, okay, you're going to choose a life of, of harm and of ego and of everything negative. I want to make sure that you, you hurt yourself as little as possible in the process. And then it's called out, do not harm the oil and the wine, which is an interesting way to talk about food in the first place, right? So here's Swedenborg's explanation of that. His Apocalypse Revealed 3.16. Do not harm the oil and the wine. This symbolizes the Lord's provision that they not violate and profane the goods and truths concealed inwardly in the Word. Oil symbolizes the goodness of love and wine the truth springing from that goodness. So it's not just these are a couple of decadent food items. These are symbolic of the two primary things. In the human heart and mind, the two primary elements of the universe. Thus, the oil here symbolizes sacred goodness, and the wine, sacred truth. The Lord's provision that these not be violated and profaned is symbolized by the people's being told not to harm them. 
For this instruction came from the midst of the four living creatures, thus from the Lord. So even in the midst of this chaos and this total rejection of goodness and truth, or near total, still God is thinking of how do we protect everyone involved? Not just the good people who might be harmed by this mindset, but the people who are adopting it themselves. Because God, even in those circumstances, is not playing favorites, not saying, okay, well, you messed up, so I don't care about... No, every step, God is thinking, how can I make it so that this person is is going to have things turn out for them as well as they possibly can, given given the choices that we're making, right? So there, I mean, that's got to be the bottom right there. I mean, you, you don't really value goodness and truth. A black horse with a scale, it's got to be it. But no, actually, the next horse is even worse. So if the kids are in the room, send them out now. Here's Revelation 6, verses 7 to 8. When he opened the fourth seal... I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hell followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with famine, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So, oh, hello, Mr. Ryder. What's your name? My name is Death. (laughs) <laughs> that's about as bad as things can get. And you would think, oh, the black horse, that, that's that scary color. But no, that, even though that's like a rejection of things, the pale is when there's no life left at all. And that's even worse. The rider on the pale horse, Swedenborg says, is an understanding of the word extinguished as to any goodness or truth, not a lack, not a twisting, but there's nothing. An understanding with no spiritual life in it as all, at all. And death doesn't even have anything he's carrying. He's just got this name. So why? Why is this one named? His name was called death and all hell followed with him, symbolizes with no spiritual goodness or truth. People have no spiritual life to connect them with heaven. And so they are drawn to hell instead. There's no anchor point for for, uh, for heaven to get in and try to at least keep you from falling farther. So this loss of spiritual life is the, the totality of the loss of spiritual life is what we're talking about here. And you may be saying, okay, what is spiritual life? Do a little clarification of terms. Would you? All right. I'm in. Let's do it. This is Apocalypse Revealed 320. The word lacks vitality for people who are without goods of life in accordance with doctrinal truth. So doing good things in accordance with your spiritual principles. For the word in the sense of the letter is not understood apart from doctrine, and doctrine is not seen without a life in accordance with it. So for there to be any spiritual life in you, you have to be acting on higher principles. Knowing them doesn't do it if you're not acting on them. If you've got an encyclopedia of golden rule and all its derivatives, but you don't actually do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, there's no spiritual life in that. He goes on, that is because a life in accordance with doctrine drawn from the word opens the spiritual mind, and light from heaven flows into the mind, enlightening it and giving it the ability to see. So when we don't have any, there's nothing in you that's trying to act any better than just feels natural and good to act. There's no striving to go outside yourself. You know, it's not even on your, it's not that you don't care about it. It's not even on your radar. It doesn't even cross your mind. That's when we're in pale horse territory. And you might have noticed that the pale horse goes out killing with all these different things. There's this huge list and Swedenborg explains what all these death weapons are in Apocalypse Revealed 3.22 and 3.23, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill. 
This symbolizes the destruction of all good in the church, with sword, with famine, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. So why not just say kill? You could have stopped there, but each of these has a meaning. This symbolically means by doctrinal falsities, by evil practices, by self-love, and by lusts. And each of those is different. You know, you can have bad bad religious or spiritual ideas that lead you to treat people in an inhumane way, evil practices that you, you get into these habits or these modes of life that are harmful, self-love, just the desire to dominate others that drives your actions, and by lusts or impulses to things. Any of these can kill you. Any of these can pull out your spiritual life, but in different ways and with different speeds and everything like that. So these are the sorts of things that need to be avoided and watched out for if we're going to avoid slipping into this this whole pale horse apocalypse that, that's trying to happen. So that's really interesting. So can we dig a little deeper into like sure. in ourselves, like how do you picture that? What would that be like? Yeah. Like that black horse, what, 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 what would that be? These two scariest of the horses. So the black horse is a symbol of, I guess you could call it apathy, mm. you know, that, that this is, we're not interested in actually getting good quality truths about how to live um, and, and any kind of higher principle that's connected mm. to love. So when there's a, a state of mind, you know, or, or, or a mindset that is totally uninterested in, or, or basically totally uninterested in, how can I make anything better? How can I improve how I think about people? Mm. How I don't, I don't know the solution to this. I don't care. That's kind of like right. the, the black horse in me. I feel yeah, like that's interesting. Yeah. You go, you go to that point of apathy and, and, um, you know, which is kind of alarming where you, it's really just not on your radar. Like I, I just don't care. Yeah. You know, and it, it's I, a different kind of state. So I can see yeah. why, you know, how that differs from the red horse or, or something. Yes, like and I think of it in terms of, in the context of a religious text, I think about you've got some religious tradition that you're semi-connected to, and you go and you do a few things with it, and you're really not interested in whether or not it makes you better, right. or, or whether it's changing the world for the better. It's just like, yeah. oh, here's the thing you that I do. You don't even think about that. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, just not right. a, it's just like, okay, this is the, this is what you do. You know. And and how about that pale horse? That's an even further step, right? Where the where the both the truth and the love are totally shut down, right? I mean, yes. it's just like the end end game. Kind it of seems thing. to me like yeah, you have vestiges of them in the black horse, like you're in really bad shape. But the pale horse is there is no spiritual life. Yeah. Swedenborg defines spiritual life as looking for anything good and true. So this would be when you become wholly absorbed in uh, selfishness and materialism. Yeah, and you're not even, not even. There's not even. It never crosses your mind to to be anywhere else. And it's good for us to, if we're looking right. at this, examining our own life, to be aware because we go through those states. I would say we go through all these yeah, worst yeah, states. Yeah, that's right. Be aware of the consequences of those states because whenever you're in a state of mind, it always seems to say to me, "This is a great place to be." Look, it it, it leads you to somewhere good. Right. But if I really catalog, okay, so I was a pale horse from four thirty to five fifteen. How did that, where did that lead me? How, how did that affect the rest of my day? Is it really as good as it, as it thinks it is? You know? Right. And it's making me think they're actually on different levels, like the white horse is on a higher level. Like the outer self yeah. can be more of that pale horse of just like, yeah. it knows no God, it's, there's no yeah. life after death, there's only this moment and gratification or something. Yeah. You no know, other people. And, and you're right down in the basement of yourself in, in that state. So in one way, I guess it would, the important thing would just be to get the 
horses in the right priority or something yeah. like that. You know, another one of those kind of things yes, that we've talked right. about before. Which horse is standing on which horse? And so, yeah. so that we can do that, let's go. Let's just refresh our memory on all Good. the horses in the whole thing. Right. Let's go to our wrap up. In the book of Revelation, the inability to open a certain book was blocking the possibility of getting a whole lot of chaos sorted out. In our own lives, a lack of awareness of what's really going on beneath the surface can likewise make it hard to sort out the turmoil in our minds and hearts. In both cases, there is only one hero who can bring the clarity of divine wisdom. If we let him, the Lord can bring both the strength of a lion and the gentleness of a lamb to help us wake up to the problems plaguing our lives, offering us courage, protection, and mercy in the process. The rider on the white horse symbolizes the best part of ourselves, the part that has genuine integrity and wants to become a better person. God gives this part of us the tools needed to conquer and overcome negativity, which then empowers us to permanently rise to a higher quality of life, safely connected to the Lord's love. The rider on the fiery red horse is a warning to beware of any religious beliefs or life principles that are operating separate from kindness and mutual love. Such beliefs and principles will only bring strife between ourselves and others and rob us and them of inner peace. The rider on the black horse reminds us to place value on seeking good quality truth about how to live our lives. Genuine truth can only be found by those who truly care about it and who use it for the purposes of learning how to love and serve God and the neighbor. And finally, the rider on the pale horse, whose name is Death, shows us how empty life can become with no desires for any of the heavenly goodness or truth that the Lord offers. A life based on self-centeredness and materialism has rejected the mindset of heaven and can only fall into the destructive impulses of hell. So Hmm. I think that through all that, we're looking at these horses from the perspective of what they can teach us rather than what they are as entities. And I think that all of it, just by the fact that we can sit here and look at the horses, shows that we can develop this same kind of transparency about ourselves, that we can examine them in the way that that, um, John was examining these horses. What does that look like? Does that mean we just have to just tell everyone everything bad we've ever thought or, or done? What does transparency mean again? Yeah, yeah. I don't think so because the the truth is supposed to be useful and it's yeah. not always useful to sort of blurt everything out to yeah. everybody or, or something like yeah. that. You know, I think a lot of this is an internal work, yeah. don't you? You know, yes. it's, it's your self-examinations between you and the Lord kind of thing. But it's that willingness to, to say, you know what, I I haven't really aced my life so far. You know, I, I want some help here. Take an honest look at myself and look at what's blocking my my spiritual development towards a greater state of heavenly love. Yeah, and that that willing, the, us initiating it, that willingness is the key in having it removed. Because it's not like any, God can't, like, how do I clean this thing up? It's all about how tightly we're holding on to yes, stuff. Yes, that's right. And uh, same thing with, you know, people say the world is getting worse. Mm. Because you see these news accounts of all kinds of horrific stuff, but yes, is it just that we're actually seeing this stuff that before didn't go unseen? You know, it's, it's a kind necessary of, part. It's kind of amazing to think about where we are, where there's with with uh, media, with instantaneous images and so forth yeah. around the world and all that kind of stuff. There is a greater transparency in our world, and it is kind of distressing. You know the, what what we see with that transparency, and yet there are things that have come to light that used to just always be 
buried, you know, yeah. that people would sort of pretend didn't exist and you can't pretend anymore. That's right. And that's the first step in getting us that, that stuff cleaned up. You know, it's not something to fear and avoid seeing what is needing to be fixed. You know, that that's something to, to welcome in a way because it helps us progress to that better quality of life. You know, we in the kitchen... We we never would have gotten ourselves a place we could eat and, and happily exist in unless we'd been willing to get into that mess and clean it up. Right. And I've noticed ever since that traumatic incident... That, that really uh, did we're, happen. We're yes. more attuned to anytime you catch even just a whiff. Yeah. You actually want to go dig it up now rather than get to the gas mask phase, you know? Yeah, that's and, right. Uh, you know, and so it helps. Oh, no, I want to find this right now. That's you know, right. I'm not avoiding it. I want to dig in there. And it's like that as we do the spiritual process. It's awesome. Yeah, that's our show for today. We are about to get to one of your questions, as always. But first, a couple of thank yous. Thanks to all of you for taking the time to watch this program. If you want to help us out, there's a couple of things you can do. First of all, remember to like and subscribe on YouTube. And if you do subscribe, make sure you click the bell to get our notifications so that you can be watching us when you want to. And so YouTube knows, hey, people think this is interesting. And they continue to, to push us out there to the YouTube world and to the internet at large. If you want to make this show possible consider joining us on Patreon. This is a way that we can have an easy setup for you to donate just a dollar per episode. And when you do that, not only are you making the creation of this material feasible, but also we'll give you a little thank you in the terms of in terms of behind the scenes content and, and looks at what, what went into making it. You'll see um, this week some pretty raw behind the scenes footage of a skit we're trying to put in to this one. So so if you want to know like what what's behind the show itself, uh, you'll, you'll learn just how the, the kitchen scene was done. And then, uh, you know, you'll, you'll get that good feeling that, that, Hey, I did something. And, and, uh, as a thank you, just preemptively from us to all of you, just, just even for watching, we're going to answer one of your questions. Like, like we try to do every week. Lexi asks, how come the Bible says the Antichrist will reign on earth before Jesus' return if there is no Satan? Mm, that's so a good I know, question. You, I know yeah. you, you have a good depth of knowledge on, on Swedenborg and the Bible and, and all this interface, so can you sort these terms out for me, and what does the whole thing mean? Yeah, well, first of all, um, Swedenborg has a rather unusual perspective on Satan and the devil and yeah. things like that, that he says there's no one devil you know there's no one there's no fallen angel who you know used to be at lucifer yes. kind of thing and now he's 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 satan and he's the embodiment yeah. of evil and he See leads our all show the is the devil real for more on that yeah and so uh, that's not a thing what that's talking about in scripture is the aggregate of hell you know it's all these evil spirits together yeah that from that sort of common spirit and that common love of evil and all that. Or the, uh, the love of dominion in any one of us could be called the devil. Uh, yeah, 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 that's right, right. And um, so, yes, the Bible says uh, this kind of thing, but when you look at things like Matthew 24, it says that the love of many hearts will grow cold. You know, okay. I think that's what it's talking about. The Antichrist in this sense is everything that's opposite to the Lord, who the Lord is is love and desire for the well-being of everybody in the whole human race. Right. And the wisdom to know how to do that, how to bring that about. The wisdom of knowing, you know, what what people are and what hell is and how to free them from it and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And so this is a prediction given in various different ways in the Bible that 
uh, before there's this transition, the kind of judgment that we've been talking about in this show, uh, there will be a time when a spirit that is the opposite of the Lord, a spirit of materialism, self-centeredness, abuse of others, mm-hmm. violence, you know, all this kind of stuff uh, will be reigning. And it's not too hard to look around and, and see that in our world, uh, but the Lord is going to come and, and take care of that. Just like the horsemen are not actual horsemen, but states of mind that, that right. uh, cause problems in the world, so the Antichrist. And isn't when we look around at the problems of the world, isn't it all from you know these negative things in the hearts and minds of people? So again, we got to just make sure that we provide the antidote to the Antichrist, which is love and truth and, and everything good. That's right. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Lexi, for the question, and uh, appreciate getting to talk about it with you, Dr. John. Good fun. Thanks, Curtis. All right, that's our show for this week. Again, I'm always amazed you made it all the way to the end. If you want to do it again, next week we're going to be doing a show on the spiritual significance of spirals, this amazing form or pattern or whatever it is that appears everywhere in nature and, if Swedenborg's accounts are to be believed, in the spiritual world as well. So that'll be next week, same time, same place. See you then. Swedenborg and Life is Amy Aquarola, Morgan Beard, Curtis Childs, Karen Childs, Matthew Childs, Alexa Cole, John Connolly, Cara Dom, Chris Dunn, Stuart Farmer, Ben Keyes, Reed McArdle, Chelsea Odner, Jonathan Rose, Shiloh Silverman, and Shada Sullivan.